Hello, thank you so much for joining me. I am here for the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise podcast. Oh my. Today we are talking about a brief overview of some terms and then a short overview of the history of fitness and exercise and how we got here, where we are today. I'm focusing primarily on when I get to the later portions, I'm focusing primarily on what happened in the U.S., but these concepts apply across Western society. And the reason I think this is important is because if you can understand how we got here, you can begin to see ways that we might be able to shift. So let's dive right in. We're going to begin by talking about definitions. Fitness is the quality or state of being fit, per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Exercise, also per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is to use repeatedly in order to strengthen or develop. So the word exercise does not necessarily connote fitness or something that is being done in a way to achieve fitness. Though the more standard and common definition of exercise, the one that I think many of us are familiar with, is it's an activity requiring physical effort carried out to sustain or improve health and fitness that comes from Google definitions. So already there's this little bit of dichotomy because if you're using an exercise in order to, for instance, learn a new language, that exercise is going to require focus, it's going to require practice, it's going to be require some sort of skill acquisition. An activity requiring physical effort does not necessarily require skill acquisition. It's got a specific purpose to sustain or improve health and fitness. But whether that's done in a skillful way depends on how you approach it. A brief history of exercise, beginning with ancient China. Oh my goodness, we're going way back. So between 2500 to 250 BC, which is a long time ago and is a very long time frame, Confucius suggested that people participate in regular physical activity. Physical inactivity was associated with organ malfunctions and internal stoppages. You can think of things like heart attacks, or gut issues, like digestive stuff. The result of this was Kung Fu gymnastics was developed. Other things that existed during that time that citizens were encouraged to participate in were archery, badminton, dancing, fencing, and wrestling. So this very first idea is that exercise is a way to improve physical health. And the things that were being used in order to do this were more skill-based activities. Around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier, during the height of the Persian Empire, they were utilizing fitness for political and military purposes. 
Beginning at age six, boys underwent training such as hunting, marching, riding, and javelin throwing with the entire goal to create better soldiers. There, it was understood that in order to be a good soldier, you had to have physical resilience. Something that's worth noting, though, is as affluence increased, fitness decreased. During ancient Greece, in Athens, physical perfection was idealized. So already we have these three different ideas. We have physical activity is beneficial for health. We have physical activity is important to create good soldiers. And we have physical activity gives us an, something that is aesthetically pleasing. In Athens, there was a strong appreciation for beauty, health, and fitness. The predominant forms of training were gymnastics, running, jumping, and wrestling. Boys did this early. Between the ages of 14 to 16, their training switched to a gym, complete with a fitness trainer supervising. So this is the start of a fitness trainer being utilized in order to achieve a physical look. In North Greece, around the same time, the Spartans were using fitness for military purposes. They emphasized fighting skills. So again, you can kind of see these three reasons for physical activity. We have health, we have beauty, we have military. Health, beauty, military. None of this <laughs> is focusing on the mind-body connection, though arguably a lot of these skills require a mind-body connection. Fighting requires intense focus, optimal arousal level, the ability to react in a smooth, coordinated way. There's a skill to that. Gymnastics, Kung Fu gymnastics requires a skill. Javelin throwing, Again, in order to get the technique to throw the javelin far requires a lot of focus. A lot of the ability of observing and saying, what did I not do well this time? What could I do better next time? During the Roman civilization, which was a little bit later, 200 BC to 476 AD, Roman citizens were eligible for the draft between the ages of 17 to 60. This is a huge span. The result was physical fitness of men was required. This was maintained by running, marching, jumping, discus, and javelin throwing. Similarly to Persia, as affluence increased, fitness decreased. The Renaissance, there was a, there's a big gap in there. And this is the dark ages. During the dark ages, people were not super into fitness. They weren't, you know, they had other things on their mind. During the Renaissance, which was between the years of 1400 to 1600, influential people like Martin Luther and John Locke believed that high fitness levels corresponded with enhanced intellectual learning. This is really the first time we see this idea that the mind and the body influence each other. 
physical education became more widespread. Which brings us to the national period. During the national period, which was between the ages of 1700 and 1850, there were four countries in Europe that made some pretty strong contributions to fitness and some of the ideas we have now. The first one is Germany. Germany was the like the birthplace of the first modern fitness movement, which was gymnastics. There were two men that were influential during this time. The first is Johann Gutzmuth, who's considered the grandfather of German gymnastics. He invented exercise programs and equipment. The second one, Friedrich Jahn, is the father of German gymnastics. He created exercise programs, which eventually led to exercise facilities that were designed for running, jumping, balancing, climbing, and vaulting. In Sweden, Herr Henrik Ling invented his own gymnastics program. He had three different types. They were educational gymnastics, medical gymnastics, and military gymnastics. What's interesting about this, at least to me, is that Jan and Ling were the predecessors to the modern mind-body movement methods. We're not covering that today, but in a later episode, I'll discuss kind of how that all came to be and some of the key players who were in the late 1800s to early 1900s utilized a lot of these principles. In Denmark, a man named Frank Nachtgo popularized gymnastics programs throughout the country. He was interested in gymnastics and school programs. He had in school systems. He had a strong interest in the importance of physical education in young people and how they developed. He eventually taught at a private facility and directed the program training teachers of gymnastics. So this is the first time we see a private gym, a private training program for the teachers. So you can start to see how some of the groundwork for how fitness is taught and how personal trainers came to be, how that kind of began to come to come about. In England, there was a medical student named Archibald McLaren. He was fascinated by the scientific components of fitness. He believed a few things. He believed the cure for weariness and stress is physical action. So he too started to understand that there was some sort of connection between what was happening physically and what was happening mentally. He also believed recreational exercise, such as sports and games, wasn't sufficient for attaining adequate fitness levels. Something to ask yourself is what is considered an adequate fitness level? Who is determining it? I don't know. He thought both boys and girls needed regular physical exercise. He thought there should be individual variation in fitness training programs, and he believed that exercise progression is important. These are principles that are still taught today. That individual variation. I do a lot of aerial arts. And I was working on a skill last night in silks that 
my proportions weren't allowing me to get. And so the teacher said, she said, try doing one arm at a time instead of trying to do both at a time. I did, and I was able to do the skill. What is the goal of what you're trying to do? This is always something I think that's worth asking yourself, especially as we look at these concepts of fitness and exercise, because so many people think fitness and exercise is drudgery, and it is the way it's traditionally taught. But if we incorporated some of these connections between the mind and the body, maybe they would be less so. This brings us to America. During 1776 and 1860, immigrants from Europe brought over some of these ideas, specifically the German and the Swedish gymnastics, but they didn't catch on. They weren't super popular. The, the influential characters at the time were starting to believe that exercise was important. Benjamin Franklin, for instance, recommended regular physical activity. He thought running and swimming was essential for health purposes. Thomas Jefferson also believed that it was really important to exercise, but he was a bit of an extremist. He thought that everybody needed to be doing two hours of exercise a day. So you've got these two extremes, which kind of continues to exist. How much do you really need to do to get an adequate benefit? And again, what are you trying to achieve with this idea of physically moving your body? There was a man named Dr. J.C. Warren, who was a medical professor from Harvard. He believed that gymnastics and calisthenics were important for the general population. And he also began devising exercises for females. So you're probably starting to notice that women were not traditionally thought of as needing to be physically strong. That maybe it didn't matter as much for them. Because if you look again, you look at these ideas, why are we exercising up until this point for aesthetics, because of the way we look, for military purposes, and for our health? Well, two of these apply to women, aesthetic purposes and health. Whether the aesthetics purpose is a good reason to exercise, we can talk about that in a later episode. Around the same time, there was a woman named Catherine Beecher who was a teacher and author, and she did all kinds of things, but she believed men and women were intellectually equal. She also believed women should be fit. And so she devised fitness programs specifically for women, including calisthenics performed to music. This resembles modern day aerobics. And again, if you think about this, ask yourself, is there some sort of skill component to these sorts of classes? Conversely, is there a way to tap into this mindfulness component when you're doing something like aerobics? Think of what's happening. You have to focus on the music. You have to focus on the cue to move, which is given to you by the music. Generally, you have to memorize some sort of routine. So you have to focus your attention. You have to learn something. 
And then in order to do it skillfully, you have to find the space within the music to create your movement. After the Civil War, there was renewed interest in the development of fitness. So there were a few years there where fitness wasn't really focused upon. A man named Edward Hitchcock taught gymnastics and calisthenics. He recognized the desired outcome was improved health. We're back to this idea of exercise for physical health. He also introduced using anthropometric measurements. So this is the first time we see numbers to measure fitness. Again, what are we measuring? What constitutes as fit? A man named Dudley Sargent added scientific research to fitness instruction and developed organized instructor training methodologies. And then William Anderson focused on physical education instruction and developed it into a professional organization. So we've got all of the things that currently haunt us in the fitness and exercise industry today. We have numbers, we have data, we have measurements. We have private organizations that are being developed for monetization. Things kind of slowed down a little bit. There was, you know, again, fitness wasn't as focused upon for a little while until World War One, when one in three drafted individuals was considered unfit for combat. Many drafted were unfit for military training. So this was considered a priority for a moment. Theodore Roosevelt was in office during part of this, and he was a big advocate for physical activity. But then the Depression hit, and people, their focus changed. But then World War II happened, and there was a repeat. Nearly half of all drafted weren't fit for combat. So we've got physical health. We have military. Around this time, after World War II, Dr. Thomas K. Curtin introduced the application of research to fitness to improve individual exercise recommendations. He cared about measuring fitness. Again, what was he measuring, against whom, and for what reason? And does this actually benefit the people who maybe could benefit the most from moving a little bit more? During the 1950s and 60s, U.S. children weren't as fit as European children. So we've got the military situation and the fact that we are less fit than our competitors, which resulted in some things. It resulted in the President's Council of Youth Fitness that was started. Also resulted in the formation of the American College of Sports Medicine, which began in 1954. The Jack LaLanne show started in 1953. Jack LaLanne was an evangelist for the benefits of physical activity. And it continued until 1985. A lot of things kind of 
this is when the fitness trends really started to kind of roll in. Fitness became a money-making machine. Got some government push behind it. Got some professional organizations behind it. The bodybuilding moment, movement uh, occurred. Dr. Ken Cooper, who's considered the father of the modern fitness movement, believed exercise was disease prevention. This led to all kinds of stuff. So now we had running in the 70s, aerobics in the 80s, the stair stepper in the 90s. Gyms started to show up in the 80s and 90s where you could use the stair stepper and you could take the aerobics class and you could use the weights so you could be whatever you wanted to be. The stability ball showed up in the aughts. Zumba happened in the tens. In the midst of all of this, there's this mind-body movement going on. And not that it hadn't been going on in the background, because those pioneers, again, they were a long time ago in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but suddenly it came, became more popularized. So you had like Pilates and yoga being taught as kind of the juxtaposition to this fitness, the juxtaposition to exercise. You needed to create a mind-body connection. I share this because our culture and our history shapes our views on the mind and the body. And that's important. I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat it ad nauseum because I think, again, that this is something we could all benefit from understanding. One of the things that the concept of mindfulness does is it reduces noise. Noise is unwanted distraction. One of the forms of noise is your internal noise. That can be a lot of things. That can be the internal chatter that's going on up here in your brain. It can also be the noise in your body. So for instance, think about these two statements. My knee hurts versus I feel some discomfort in my right knee. Which one is taking ownership of your body? Which one is, is accepting that there is a connection between who I am and this body that I live in? And which one does your regular fitness program kind of advocate for. And what I mean by that is if you're constantly thinking in terms of I'm going to work my biceps today, or I'm going to go for a run so that I can look a certain way. Rather than I'm going to explore how my upper limb can lift this weight. Or I'm going to go explore my neighborhood. I'm going to do it moving quickly. I'm going to run. And while I'm running, I'm going to check in occasionally and see how I'm running. How can we create more interest and curiosity in how we are actually moving our bodies? And why does that even matter? Why does this connection matter? We'll explore that in later episodes. I'd like to take a moment just to thank some of the places I got this information. So one of which was the origins of Western mind-body exercise methods. It's a research paper. I also 
got a lot of this information from the History of Fitness, which is on the University of New Mexico website. And then finally, The Temple of Perfection, A History of the Gym, which is a book by Eric Shaleen. I'll see if I can figure out a way to link those in my notes so that you can access them if you want. All right. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.